10 months stay in the Wartburg Castle was one of the most productive periods in Martin Luther's life. But not all the action was in the castle outside Eisenach. The team of theologians that Luther left behind in Wittenberg were also busy during this period, with, but with decidedly mixed results. Although the changes being implemented in Wittenberg were generally in line with Luther's teachings, they were not carried out in a way that was consistent with Luther's evangelical theology. The individual freedom that Luther had defined in his seminal work, The Freedom of the Christian, was pushed aside to force monks, priests, and parishioners to embrace the new thinking. Luther was not pleased, but there wasn't much he could do except write to his colleagues to encourage them to be more gracious to those who were uncomfortable with the changes. When this didn't work, Luther found himself in, his, in the uncomfortable position of engaging in an open disagreement with his own supporters, a precursor to the disagreements that we see amongst Protestants even today. I'm Mike Yeagley. And I'm Evan Gertner. And this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to the discussion on the history and the theology of the Lutheran Reformation, all over nice cold beer. So... When Luther was busy at the Wartburg, uh, his friends were busy making changes in Wittenberg. So episode 26 looked at the events of Luther at the Wartburg. This is episode 27, and we are looking at the events of Andreas Karlstadt and the dean of the University of Wittenberg and what is happening in Wittenberg. Now, Andreas Karlstadt turn, will sort of reveal himself to be the leader of these these changes in Wittenberg as time goes on. He's the real driver for what's going on while Luther is gone. Uh, you might remind, rem, remember Karlstadt from episode number 12. Uh, that was back in 1519, uh, the 1519 debate in Leipzig. Uh, this is where Karlstadt engaged a debate into a debate with John Eck in a debate on Luther's teachings. He ultimately fumbled the debate so badly, possibly because his notes were ruined when his wagon lost a wheel shortly after his arrival, that Luther had to step in to debate with Eck. So the first changes began when three priests near Wittenberg got married in the early summer of 1521. This was a scandal. So uh, now one of them, first of all, Archbishop Albert of Mainz called for the arrest of all three of the priests. So the, uh, the charge would be violation of their vows. Okay. And two were in the jurisdiction of Duke George of Ducal Saxony, and one was in the jurisdiction of Frederick the Wise. Now, Frederick appeals to the theologians at Wittenberg to see what he should be doing with this call to arrest this priest. Luther had not yet published a firm stance on vows, although he had certainly talked about the subject. Uh, for example, in Freedom of a Christian, Luther said all things are allowed for Christian and that we were constrained uh, by our love for God and our love for each other. So it's, it's easy to see how a monk or a priest would wonder how his vow was truly a celebration of love for God or love for the neighbor. If a vow was taken under duress as a young child or if vows were taken in arrogance of thinking one would earn his own salvation through keeping of his vows, then that, that is not keeping with love of God for, or love for neighbor. And so, and then, of course, if you read Luther, you'll find all sorts of trash talking about monks and monastic vows and all sorts of stuff. Um, and so that, that, I'm sure, stoked the fire a little bit. So the most significant point that Luther had made was in his address to the Christian nobility, where he noted that we are commanded to populate the earth, the command of God which results in our sex drive. 
Uh, Luther says that the laws of man cannot annul the laws of God, so vows were doomed to failure or misery. So he places monastic vows as a law of man and not as a law of God. And so where the law of God is more important, uh, we must set aside the law of man. Yeah. I mean, and he talks about how difficult it is. He talks about how, well, you know, these, these monks are going to need a housekeeper and she's going to come in and you got a guy and a gal. These housekeepers were universally women and it is like bringing straw to a fire and expecting nothing to happen. So, but this was just, these were just Luther's discussion points on the problems with the vows of celibacy. They were not really a thorough treatment of the issue. So the two priests who were in the jurisdiction of Duke George were jailed. This is uh, the property, the the land that's right next to Electoral Saxony. There's Ducal Saxony and there's Electoral Saxony, uh, two sides, uh, the Ernestine and Albertine sides of the family. And Frederick the Wise is, you know, in, in Electoral Saxony and Duke George is in Ducal Saxony. So the two priests that are in Ducal Saxony, what happens to them? They're jailed. They're jailed. Now, one of them was executed. The um, Luther first of all, Luther protests that they're that they're being jailed for um, marrying for marrying. Yeah, uh, and then one of them gets executed, and nobody knows what happened to the other jailed priest. So you know, it was now pretty... what happens to the priest that is in Frederick the Wise's territory? Frederick asks for a decision, and Karlstad jumped at the chance to rule on the issue. He is the dean of the the college at Winburg. So Karlstadt and June declares that all vows taken by priests and monks are void. And uh, and that's not the most aggressive thing that he says, because that's not that uh, far disagreeable with Luther, who is speaking against vows that are taken under duress. Here's where Karlstadt kind of shows his aggressiveness. I think of whenever in my mind I picture Andreas Karlstadt, I am picturing a pastor who has gone to a workshop and has discovered another church that is doing something that is as good as sliced bread. And now he comes back to his congregation. And rather than, you know, he goes and he went to this workshop and learned from a pastor what this pastor was doing to grow his church. Yeah. And now that pastor was in that church for 10 years, 20 years. And now after 20 years, he's at this workshop presenting. Carl Stott hears that kind of disregards the 20 years of biblical training and an understanding of the gospel and just goes to the finish line and says, we need to make these changes. Yeah. And so there, there is this, you know, I think many people in a church have experienced what happens when their pastor comes back from a workshop. There's changes. Yeah. And no one knows why the changes are happening, but there's changes. Yeah, yeah. And Carl Stott does this. And so Carl Stott says that not only are... All vows taken by priests and monks void, but that priests must marry. And that's that's pretty much gasoline on a fire, right? And so, because it's switching one vow for another vow, both yeah. being required. Yeah, and it's setting up all sorts of new laws. And and Karlstadt's not afraid to set up laws, and we'll see that as this goes on. So so Luther has problems with that, and uh. Luther's close friend, Philip Melanchthon, also agreed that it was acceptable for priests to marry, but his argument was based on on the, um, the, the frailty, weakness of the flesh. Weakness of the flesh. Thank you. Get married because otherwise you're just going to take advantage of your housekeeper. So Luther has problems with both of these. He has problems with the, the demand to marry, and he has problems with saying that, well, you're going to be have trouble with this, so go and do it anyway. 
And and so Luther, let's take these one at a time. Luther disagrees with Karlstadt that priests must marry. He says, this is Luther saying, What is more dangerous than to invite a great crowd of celibates to matrimony with passages of scripture so unreliable and so uncertain that those who marry will afterward be harassed with continual anguish of conscience worse than that which they suffer now? So Luther is concerned that the people who marry based on the scripture passages that Karlstadt gives to them will later on find the weakness of those passages and then doubt their conscience and think that they probably should have kept their vows in the first place. But now that they've broken their vows, it's irreversible. Yeah. So Luther is concerned for the conscience of those who are going to be in doubt. Yeah. And so, and then with, with Melanchthon, uh, now Melanchthon says there's an inability to fulfill the law and so we, uh, it requires a nullification of the law. And Luther's so if you can't keep the law, let's erase the law. And Luther says, well, that we can't keep so many of the laws of God's laws. We can't just erase all of God's laws just because we can't keep them. Luther is concerned that would lead to a lawlessness that we live as if there is no law. Right. Right. Now, Luther saw that it didn't make sense for children to be held accountable to a vow since they had no way of understanding what they were signing up to. And I think we talked about that a little in the last episode, but that's this whole idea of children of seven years old being given up by their parents to the local monastery, and they say, you know, hey, we can't we can't keep this kid. He's too expensive. <laughs> yeah, this is one... You raise him, and you get to keep him for life. Right. And so the kid takes a vow, and boom, he's a, he's a monk, and the monks have him now. We still see today respect for how parents... Um... I, I, my child can't make a contract. And so if I'm at Sky Zone and there's a release form, he can't sign that. I sign that as yeah. a parent. It's not fair to make a child sign a contract. It just doesn't make sense. Right, right. So Luther was, as much as he was concerned that children's vows could be erased, he was less certain uh, about a vow as an adult. And he was troubled by this thought that his friends also would force him to take a wife. If Karlstadt is saying... Every monk must marry. What does that mean about Luther? Yeah, Luther says, Good heavens, will our Wittenbergers give wives to to, to me too? They won't give me one. Yeah. It's like he, he, want, he doesn't want a wife. So Luther responds to this question about vows by writing the Themata Devotis, uh, Themes Concerning Vows, in September of 1521. These are 280 theses on vows that he was ready to debate at any time. So think of 280 paragraphs or 280 sentences that explain what he thinks is at stake in this question about vows. So there's a couple of major points that he makes here. Uh, first, he says that if you took a vow to make yourself more holy or righteous, the vow was idolatrous. All right, so if you take a vow, Mike, and you took that vow for the purpose of being a holy person, that's idolatry. All right, that vow you can break. All right, let's look at the next one. Second, he pounded out, pointed out that if you were able to serve freely within the confines of a vow then there was no reason to reject the vow. If you're a monk and you like being a monk and you became a monk for benign purposes, stay a monk. Yeah. Is what he's saying. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's, you know, he, he basically says, uh, you know, when Luther declared that all things are allowed for the Christian and the freedom of the Christian, he was saying that we are no long, longer bound by the Old Testament laws. So, uh, priests and monks can't be bound by monastic vows, but if they fr- freely choose to remain single then there's no need for them to be married. And so there's room 
in Luther's mind for a monastery of Lutheran monks. Yes. But what would be... Are there such a thing as... There is. There is an Augustinian monastery in Michigan, in fact, uh, that is a Lutheran monastery. Okay. Um, It's mostly defined as a retreat center with the monks that are there having their their private sacred space and then helping to serve the people who are using it as a retreat center. Okay. Okay. Now, he summarized his thinking by pointing out that St. Paul says that the law is not a law if you keep it of your own accord. So a vow is not a vow when you keep it freely. So, in his view, monastic vows were either unnecessary or idolatrous. Either way, they're not binding. You keep them, not because you're bound to it, but because you want to do it. Yeah. Um, Now, you found a quote by Bernard Lozzi. Yeah, it says, uh, God does not recognize a vow that conflicts with evangelical freedom. We cannot surrender the freedom promised in baptism, even if we would, even if we would like to. And so this is a point, it's not really a godly vow. Because God does not recognize a vow that conflicts with our gospel-based freedom. Okay. And so if I make a vow that's idolatrous and unnecessarily binding, and I break that vow, am I breaking God's word? So, and the answer is no, you're right, not breaking God's word. Right. So this is specific to monastic vows. And one of the things I, I didn't see here was a clarification in my reading, a clarification between monastic vows and wedding vows. I think, did we discuss this already? But Luther writes separately about marriage vows. Um, he does. And he does. And when he writes about marriage vows, he talks about those as being given in faith to one another and not as a, a legal vow before God and man as the same as monastic vows that are binding on a person. But these are vows we take freely okay. and joyously. Okay. Encouragement of love for the other. Yeah, I didn't mean to, to spring that on you, but that's the, the, a marriage vow is also a, um, a fulfillment of God's law. Because in, that's the way I, I was thinking, mm-hmm. is that you know, God does bind us together as man and wife. And, uh, and so there is this fulfillment of God's law that happens where a, a monastic vow is, according to Luther's thinking, is against, it stands against God's law. That was sort of the, anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Um, so now finally, he also released not only the Themata de Votis, but he released another document, the judgment of Luther on monastic vows. I like it, the title. It, it kind of says what it's about. Yeah. Yeah. He just, he's being pretty clear there. It's not obtuse. <laughs> no, not at all. Starts out by stating that vows are, uh, stating out that vows are scriptural. So the concept of making a vow, I vow to do this. There's room in scripture for that. Yeah. Uh, the question is what vows should be kept and which should be rejected. So vows that please God should be kept. Like a wedding vow. A no. vow that displeases God should, should be, be re- rejected. Should be rejected. So there are five sections where Luther untangles all this. Uh, the fr- and so we're going to quickly go through this. First t- section is titled, Vows Do Not Rest on the Word of God. Uh, they run counter to the Word of God. So if a vow is running contrary to the Word of God, you can reject it. And the most important point that can be made here is the underlying idea of a vow is, uh, if we think I, by making this vow... I can become more perfect. That's a bad idea. Yeah. It doesn't matter if we're talking about poverty, chastity, obedience. Uh, we are really all called call to fulfill all these biblical mandates. So they're given to the whole priesthood of believers. And if I make a vow to say, I'm going to make a vow of poverty, 
I can make it sound like I'm more superior to others that are baptized into the church. And everybody in the church is, is called to be, uh, live a life of poverty. Everybody in the li- uh, church is called to live a life of chastity and, and so forth. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, again, this, 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 I'm going to be, I'm going to live a life of poverty sort of sets yourself apart from the rest of the church and more a superior Christian, you know, type thing. Um, the second one, it's titled vows are against faith. And, and Luther here says a vow is a special, special or personal law. And, and if I make it to be a personal law, then I am making it as if my life is maintained and moving towards the the keeping of this law rather than my life being focused on the work of Christ. Yeah. yeah. So those vows, they well, can be broken. And in fact, they must be broken because they run contrary to the evangelical freedom we have in Christ. Right, right. Uh, the third section, and, and oh, one thing I didn't mention here was that each one of these sections are like freestanding arguments. So these aren't interwoven where like one builds on the other. Each one of these is meant to be a freestanding argument. So this, that one right there, the second section where it says, you know, that, uh, the, the vows are like a personal law. That's its own little section. And, and later he's going to say, and I'm going to find it here, but that is that, oh, sometimes vows are okay. You know, it's like, so it's sort of interesting the way this is set up. So the third section is vows are against evangelical freedom. Uh, here he says we're given freedom in Christ in our baptism, and he he uh, interesting that he backs away from his position that vows must be broken. Uh, gives an example of a monastic vow that could be rightly taken here. Look, O oh God, I vow to you this kind of life, not because I think it the way to righteousness and salvation or satisfaction of sins, for such may your mercy preserve me. But I am striving for this, as long as we live in the flesh, and since we should not be idle. I would like to take you this kind of life in order to discipline my body, serve my neighbor, meditate on your word as another chooses farming or trade. So this is basically like, okay, some people are, are farmers, some people are trade, you know, do trade. Some There's people an equality. Yeah, I'm just a, I'm just a monk and this is just my, my task that's been given to me. And I give a vow that I'm going to stay at this task and work hard at it. Now the fourth section is vows are contrary to the commandments of God. So one of Luther's problems with monasticism was that it uh, cloistered monks away uh, where they were hidden from the problems of their neighbors. So in this way, the monastic vow was against God's command to love our neighbor. Luther did not see love for neighbor with a monk who was hidden in a corner praying. Yeah. He found love for neighbor in direct action for that neighbor. Yeah. Now, and, you know, that's... The, there are monastic orders that do go, get out, and some, but some stay cloistered away. It's a different monastic orders do but different cer- things. But certainly Luther's perspective, yeah. writing in this time period, is monks are those who are hidden away. Yeah. And we're not supposed to be hidden from our neighbor, so there's a conflict there. So the fifth section is monasticism is contrary to common sense and reason. Uh, he points out that there's, there are special dispensations allowing priests to break vows if they're impossible to fulfill due to imprisonment, sickness, poverty, or other things. So if it's a vow I can break, why don't I just break it then? Yeah. You know, who who gets to make Where's this? Where's that line? Yeah, this is a vow to God. And, you know, who gets to make this assessment that you can break it? Then if anybody can break it, then everybody should be able to break it type thing. So it's uh, uh, it's an interesting little paper that he writes here. So Luther's judgment on monastic vows finished the discussion of monasticism in evangelical theology. 
Now, as we use that phrase, evangelical theology, evangelical freedom, that word evangelical uh, could be translated as good news or gospel. For Luther, when he uses that word evangelical, he is thinking of the idea that we are saved not through our works, but by the grace and mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the evangelical theology is that theology that we are saved not by works, keeping of vows, maintaining of some sort of life that leads towards perfection, but we are saved by Jesus. Yeah, by the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, now Karlstadt even gets married here. So Karlstadt got married in January of 1522. He married a young girl from a poor, noble family. And Luther, uh, as much as Karlstadt and Luther have conflicts, they have these moments when they, they have reconciliation. And Luther approved of this marriage, noting that he knew the girl. Yeah, she was a young girl, by the way. She was uh, really young, just a teenager. So that's that. That's a, the it's a era. different. Dis- uh, different. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a, that's the era. That's the era. So time for our beer break. We have the Arbor Brewing Company Sacred Cow IPA. Uh, that's a coppery gold, and I'm looking at it. It's coppery gold hue, uh, full floral cascade hop aroma, rich bre- uh, bready malts lay in perfect foundation for the profusion of tangy citrusy hops that infuse the beer with a distinct ruby red grapefruit quality. That's uh, a startle startles. I guess starts it starts the palate. Uh, starts, starts on the palate and lingers through a long, satisfying finish. I have a little problem with my paper here. <laughs> Mike's. Uh, <laughs> printout has a line of about a quarter inch that's just missing words (laughs) so you're taking some guesses there uh so their original publication is in ann arbor and uh they serve the sacred cow cask conditioned on a british beer engine what does that mean i honestly don't know they they write it up uh, you use british and beer it's supposed to be more authoritative maybe i don't know i guess so but it has less carbonation and it's uh supposed to be served warmer than other ales um and that warmer beer flavor allows the um th- that warmer beer allows the flavors to open up now british beers are supposed to be served warmer and mm-hmm. uh unfortunately this is i i served it cold um because well i i didn't take the time to but as it's been sitting here as we've been I, talking I guess, it's yeah, warmed up a it's little warmed bit up a little bit um mm. that is good i like that one so the Arbor Brewing Company, I was reading up on these guys, and they have three locations, I think, is what I, I found. And one of the things they have they have a place in uh, uh, they have a place in in Ann Arbor, and I've I, been there. They have a second place in Michigan, but then they they opened one in India. They have a place in India. So uh, why not? Uh, it's uh, they, one of their one of their students. One of the students who used to come into the brewery was an Indian kid, or uh, I don't know if he was a kid, but he was an Indian. And uh, and then he's he, from Bangalore. Yeah, and he opened up. He said, "You know what? I love this place. I think it worked great in Bangalore, India. I'd like to license one there." And so they got it up and running, and they're they've uh, it's it's very popular supposedly there in, in Bangalore, India. It is the premier brew pub with its focus on Western-style service and hospitality, creative American pub food, and cutting-edge handcrafted beer. Uh, the last time I was at Arbor Brewing Company in Ann Arbor was for a going away for a pastor who was uh, taking a call out to Colorado. And so uh, there was about 15, 20 pastors gathered around a table 
uh, cheering this guy on to his new mission. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That's nice. That's nice. So, um, yeah, this was uh, started by Matt and Renee Greff. Uh, they're the co-founders, and uh, it's they were like one of the first breweries, microbrews here in Michigan back in 1995, I think. They they go back. Now, this is I think we mentioned this is the Sacred Cow India Pale Ale, and just a, a good solid beer. I really really enjoying this one. So, prost. Now, as we chip our glasses together, we've ruined a few of Josh's glasses. <laughs> and so thank you, Josh. We always recognize Josh at the end of the episodes, but we should occasionally remember him during the beer breaks, too, because at least these glasses have no chips in them yet. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. We're working on that. So- now, going back to Wittenberg, there is the question not only of monastic vows and whether monks should marry or not. But now the question is also coming up about communion. Now, communion is a major issue that Luther had to address. And the real theological change um, may be found in the discussion of monasticism, but the change that the people were going to see was in the distribution of the Lord's Supper. Yeah, and that that really caused a lot of heartburn. It's it's funny how when and I, is this your experience? Like you can change all sorts of theology, but so long as the the service doesn't change, people don't really notice. But once you change the service, you know things people get pretty hot pretty quick. Is that is that your experience? Yes, uh, change the service, um, and I will quickly hear about it. Yeah, uh, you know change. Um, a sentence in the theological statement about the Lord's Supper in our bulletin, I probably won't hear it for six months. Really? Yeah. And and the, the, the sentence is probably more, uh, to me, a sentence on the Lord's Supper would be probably more... Yeah, a few years ago, I we have a column in the bulletin describes uh, the theology of the Lord's Supper at St. Paul, and that if a person um, agrees that the body and blood of Christ is being offered for the forgiveness of your sins and you are in agreement with the teaching of the Lutheran Church, you're welcome to receive the Lord's Supper at St. Paul. And three, four years ago, I revised that column, uh, changing some of the language. I was trying to make it more simple. I was trying to make it so it was not so dense that someone just read past it, but that I wanted to make it simple so someone would read it. Okay. And I changed it. I, I showed it to some people. We put in the bulletin. I didn't hear a word about that. And I had worked for like a good couple of weeks and trying to craft these hundred words into something that was simple and yet declarative of what is being offered. And I was like, I, I, I Bolton's getting passed out and I'm watching people to see if they're opening up to that page and nothing. <laughs> yeah. You know, unfortunately, theology sort of just skips by a lot of folks. So. But so the question of monastic vows, the theology of that was the language of the freedom of a Christian and how in our relationship to Christ, what we do in this life is not for our salvation. What we do is for service to a love of God and service for our neighbor. And Luther, and the question about monastic vows is really establishing how do we look at our relationship to God and our relationship to our neighbor. There was some good uh, theology involved there. With the Lord's Supper, now Luther had been talking about both bread and wine for communion for over two years at this point, uh, although no one had actually shared the wine with the laity yet. Um, this had so far just been theological talk that the common people were observing, uh, these professors having, but it had not changed their 
Sunday morning experiences. Yeah, and now in the last episode, we talked a little bit about Sin Boldly, Luther's letter to Melanchthon, encouraging him to to share the bread and the wine, uh, and and the the whole context of that. Uh, do it, uh, he said to Melanchthon, and do it boldly. Uh, it will be a sin against the unity of the church, uh, but we must do it because it upholds the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right. Go ahead, sin boldly, share the bread and the wine. Uh, even though he wasn't a priest, Melanchthon understood and celebrated the sacrament of communion with several students on September 29th, 1521. And, on and then on October 6th, Gabriel Zwingli, an Augustinian brother who had a reputation for giving strong sermons, started to discourage people from attending Mass if the priest at that Mass would refuse to share both bread and wine. Now, this didn't go over very well at the Castle Church. Now, there are several churches, there are a couple of churches there in Wittenberg. So the main church uh, that a lot of the laity would be attending was the Town Church, and then the Castle Church, uh, which is attached to the castle where Frederick the Wise would live when he's there in Wittenberg, is also the chapel for the university. Okay. And so as uh, you have this Augustinian brother who is uh, telling students, don't go to these masses if you see this guy leading this mass. Yeah. And now some priests are complaining to Frederick because they notice that their services are being avoided. Yeah. And so Frederick does a couple of things. He orders the priests and the professors to resolve their differences. And then he appoints a committee to investigate Gabriel's willing and uh, the the Augustinian brother who was discouraging people from attending the, the mass if they weren't offering the wine. Uh, within a month, Zwilling, uh, along with a dozen other Augustinian monks, left the monastery. There's a walkout. Now, there were only a total of 40 monks living in the Augustine monastery. So that's so a pretty big group. And there was already a slow drifting away of monks through those monks getting married or other things. Yeah. And so um, it's going to happen eventually that now Luther is almost living at that monastery by himself. Uh, but at least right now, you have... These 14 leave, this dozen leaving, and this number of 40 is slowly growing smaller and smaller. So Luther's there at the Warburg, and he decides, you know, he really needs to see what's going on there in, uh, in Wittenberg. So he arrives in Wittenberg on December 4th. He stays for three days, and he stays in disguise as Junker George, as Squire George or, or Knight George. And he's happy with everything he sees there. Uh, he's, uh, he has some concerns about the monks leaving the monastery, uh, and... And his concern is not just that they're leaving, but he is concerned that they have made the decision mm -hmm. to leave emotionally, and they would feel guilty about abandoning their vows later. I think this is a very pastoral character of Luther, that he has seen someone make an emotional decision, and he is concerned that later on they will regret that emotional decision. So... So he's happy with he's happy with that. No, he's happy with the sharing of the bread and wine. Very happy with the sharing of the bread and wine. He's generally happy with the 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 monks leaving the monastery, and and it's I think he noticed that there was a reduction in the private masses, and he's happy about that. Or it's the th things were moving in that direction. Now at the same time as he's arriving, townspeople broke out in violence on December third in fifteen twenty one. A group barged into the town church. They chased the priest out, and they threw rocks at them. On December 4th, signs were posted which ridiculed the monks who were at the Franciscan cloister. Now, Luther was Augustinian, so they're 
making complaints against the Franciscans here. Yeah, and they they broke into the uh, they broke into the Franciscan church and ripped apart the wooden altarpiece, which is pretty pretty rough. And on December six, a group of forty rowdy students and citizens marched through town, supposedly threatening any monk any monk they saw with daggers. Now. Yeah, they're, they're sort of flashing their knives at them. You know? So they walk through town on December 6th with daggers, and if they see a monk, they make him scared. Yeah. Now, Luther, it's unclear how much Luther was aware of this riotous actions of December 3, 4, and 6. He wrote that he was pleased during his visit in Wittenberg with what he saw. He also mentioned that he attributed the unrest that he saw as boyish pranks of the students. Now, it's unclear, uh, like we said, it's sort of unclear whether he saw people, you know, flashing daggers at monks. I, I doubt he'd be happy with that. Now, one consideration is that the violence of these riots is overplayed by opponents of Martin Luther, and they're trying to demonstrate how dangerous to society Luther's reforms are. And so they want to make, the in tabloid journalism, they want to make these riots sound as dangerous and as numerous and as chaotic as possible. And on the other hand, Luther wants to show his evangelical reforms as leading society towards uh, a love of God and a service for neighbor. And he may desire to downplay these revolts. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's sort of unclear to know exactly what was happening. Uh, but, uh, when Luther returns to the Wartburg, he sends out a man- manuscript says, a, a, called a sincere admonition to all Christians to guard against insurrection and rebellion. So he writes that on December 14th and he tries to calm everything down. So even if he tried to dismiss the character of the riots as boyish pranks, it was serious enough that he writes a manuscript against them. And there are other things that happen in Wittenberg besides these events of December 3, 4, and 6 in 1521. Andreas um, Karlstadt is going to threaten more violence against the artwork and churches and other things like that. And and we're going to see by the end of this episode that Luther feels compelled to return to Wittenberg. And there was other things going on from between the, on the trip between Wittenberg and the Wartburg. Uh, Luther is traveling in disguise as Junker Jorg, and he's hearing things. He's hearing what people are saying, and, and he's hearing the, the that some people are beginning to talk about insurrection. Some people are talking about rebellion. There's a lot of discontent in the air in, in, in Germany in this time. And, and, you know, so he's, he's trying to sort of tamp all of this. So it's hard to say who he was writing this to, the sincere admonition, whether it was to the, the students in Wittenberg or all these people who he heard talking about, you know, the beginnings of the peasant riot or the peasant revolt. So it's, it's difficult to say. In mid-December, Frederick rejected a call to reform the mass by sharing the wine. Um, stopping private masses and etc. He said it is too much change at once, uh, and it also threatened the priests who were still adhered to, uh, adhering to the Roman Catholic way of doing things. So inside of Wittenberg, there are priests that are following along with Luther's evangelical reforms, but there are also priests that are serving in Wittenberg that are still holding out of the Roman Catholic beliefs. And Frederick the Wise is trying to leave room for both parties to exist inside of Wittenberg. So Andreas Kallstadt uh, ignores Frederick's ruling, 
and he celebrates the evangel an evangelical worship service on Christmas in 1521. He celebrated the Lord's Supper in German, and he, distrib- and he, di- and he distributes the bread and the wine to the congregants. That's in opposition to Frederick the Wise's command. Now, what really starts stoking the fire is a couple of days after Christmas, you have the Zwickau prophets show up. So a group of visitors come from the town of Zwickau, and they came to Wittenberg, and one of the visitors was named Nicholas Storch, a weaver who claimed to have God-given insights into the Bible. And he was supported by a priest from Zikwa, Zik, Zikau, Zwickau <laughs> named Thomas Munzer. Now, Thomas Munzer is going to come into our German history later uh, in 1524 and 1525 in the Peasants' Revolt. But right now, he's just accompanying Nicholas Storch. And Nicholas Storch is making claims that the Spirit of God has visited him and given him unique insights into the Bible. Now, Melanchthon is impressed by all this, and he asked Frederick to bring back Luther so he could evaluate the claims of the visitors from Zwickau. And I think Melanchthon is starting to imagine that as the gospel is being shared in the lands, the Spirit of God is visiting the people and giving them a vibrancy of faith. So he is seeing Nicholas Storch at first reading as an evidence for the Spirit of God bringing a revival, although, you know, that language of revival isn't there yet. Yeah. But the thought is, Nicholas Storch saying he is heard from God how to read the scriptures, what great evidence this is for we are uh, unbridling the gospel. Yeah. Now, Luther is contacted, but he's only responding by letter right now and saying that he is not impressed by these prophets and they should not be taken seriously. Uh, He first says that, hey, they're not doing anything that Satan couldn't do. And that's actually a good way to look at these things is, you know, could Satan pull this off? Eh. He could pull off a lot. and the, So he says, yep, not doing anything Satan couldn't do. And then he says that they should be tested by asking if they experienced any spiritual distress. If they had truly come into the presence of God and received from God unique direction on how to read the scriptures, they should have had some moment of fright. Isaiah 6, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Peter, the calming of the storm, getting down on his knees. There is throughout scripture the revelation that once... When someone meets God, they are filled with fear. Yeah. Luther's great worry with these Zwickau prophets and why he could identify them as the work of Satan is because these Zwickau prophets take trust away from what the scriptures say and bring trust into some unique special revelation. It's and almost li- like a like a a modern charismatic uh, movement is what it is. Oh, I was I was going to say like a modern Gnosticism is uh, you know it's where where they're giving special secret knowledge. You know, yeah. Although Nicholas would teach it as this is what I've been given, and he would share it with people. So okay. it wasn't as secret as okay. Gnosticism. It was more seen as I am a a, a more of, um, special person because God has done this for me rather than my specialness being tied to my baptism. My specialness would be tied to having the special revelation. Okay. Okay. And, and Luther is concerned that this, uh, disrupts the equality we have through our baptism. Now the Zwickau prophets, uh, are dangerous, but the priest that came with them, Thomas Munzer, Munzer and Karlstadt banded together to start pushing more radical reforms. And uh, Luther disagrees with these reforms. And within the over the next couple of months, the disagreement between Karlstadt and Luther 
becomes an open conflict, and things really start to deteriorate between the two of them. And one of the big disruptions with Karlstadt is his embrace of force and requirement, and and that uh, by law requiring changes rather than through teaching and preaching and, and demonstrating through the scriptures why this change is helpful. He pretty much just tells people, we got to do this change. Yeah, yeah. So, And then know, we also have Gabriel's willing. So he was the Augustinian monk who left the monastery, right? But he didn't leave, leave, like go away. He was still around. And he was angry that the Roman Catholic Church had deceived him by telling that the statutes and the relics had some sort of magical power. And so in January, he instigates a group to attack the Augustinian Church. He destroys altars, pitchers, banners, and altar vessels. Uh, they defaced several statues by knocking off their heads and chopping off their hands. You know, I was just in Europe and I saw a lot of statues with their heads chopped off and their hands chopped off. And I never realized it was because of the, the riots that happened. This is just the first time this happened, but this happened all through Europe uh, in this period. Yeah. Uh, during the well, period. and the reason to knock off the hands and to knock off the head was to show that the statues were powerless. If this statue is truly the presence of this saint or truly um, an indwelling of God at this place, God would not let me do this. That was the notion. So I will show that God is not at work in the statue and I'll knock off his hands. Now, it's also, though, Mike, uh, the character of these statutes that the hands and the face were often the point of weakest connection as well. So yeah. As it was easy to knock it off. Uh, Roman artwork, uh, Roman statuary often is missing hands and, and other pieces because those were the pieces that were easiest to break off, too. Okay. Oh, just through accidents, not not intentionally, maybe. Sometimes intentionally, though, like what we read about here, but sometimes just by accident. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So now Luther, after Zwingli, uh, Zwilling, Zwilling's um, attack on the Augustinian church, he decides to return to Wittenberg. And now Frederick wants him to stay in the Wartburg uh, because the political environment really wasn't quite settled yet. The Edict of Worms by Charles V is still out there. Uh, Luther is still an outlaw. And and yet Luther writes back, expressing his love and concern for the elector, but being compelled by his conscience, he must undo what the devil has done during his absence. So... Frederick needed something better than this explanation from Luther uh, for the emperor. So uh, Frederick has to have something for the emperor saying, okay, why is, why is why are you letting this outlaw in your land? Right. So Luther wrote back with three reasons that Frederick the Wise could give to the emperor to explain why Frederick the Wise is allowing this outlaw to lay in his land. So the first thing he says is he's called by the whole congregation at Wittenberg in a letter filled with urgent begging and pleading. Now, there's no copy of this, but that's what Luther says. So the reason Luther has come back is because the congregation has asked him. The people have asked him. And then the second one is Satan had intruded the fold in Wittenberg, so he had pastoral responsibilities. So he's using the language of a sheepfold and how uh, the wolf of Satan is attacking the sheep, and so the shepherd has to return. Okay, and then the third one was that he re- he feared a rebellion starting. And and here, the, the, the writers, I, the, the, the historians I read, uh, they, they were sort of split on this. They said, well, you know, it's possible that, the, that he was really concerned about this, but it's also possible that he was sort of playing it up a little bit to give... Frederick some cover, some political cover, saying, uh, you know, things are really going out of control in Wittenberg, and we need Luther there. So So Luther, with these three reasons why he should return to Wittenberg, arrives 
on March 6 in 1522. And he gave eight sermons in eight days, starting on the first Sunday in Lent, March 9th. These sermons are the, called the Invocavit sermons, uh, or the Wittenberg sermons. These eight sermons, each preached, uh, giving explanation for going forward, how are we going to make changes in Wittenberg. And so... Now, we're going to be covering that in our next episode. Uh, now, I, I, you know, this is one of the things that uh, Evan asked me to, he, he wanted to have a whole episode on this, or he wanted to make sure we covered this. And I, I, I made an assumption that this is probably good for pastors. Is that? Is I think that... the Invocavit sermons are a good explanation for any pastor that wants to make a change in his church. I know that as I arrived at St. Paul in Hamburg, I wanted to change the practice of how frequently they celebrated the Lord's Supper. Okay. And now the Invocavit sermons, uh, Luther gives the pattern of, of preaching and teaching and, and sharing the word so that the Spirit of God through the gospel brings about the change in people's hearts. And that when the people request the change, that's when the pastor then introduces the change. Now the people will ask for the change after they've been taught from the scriptures. Now if the people don't ask for it, then it's not ready to bring about the change. Okay. Okay. And so we'll talk about that um, next episode, the Invocavit Sermons of um, March of 1522. And yeah, this is the, again, this is the set of sermons that Luther gives as sort of guidelines for change within the church in Wittenberg. So it's going to be an interesting one. I guess that does it. Let's say, sign off. I want to say thanks to Josh. And thanks to the folks at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamburg, Michigan. Again, we appreciate James Kittleson's uh, book, Luther the Reformer, Scott Hendricks, Martin Luther, Visionary Reformer. Uh, uh, you know, at, at Luther's Works, 44 and 45, uh, Wikipedia. Uh, you can contact us at graceontap.podcast uh, at gmail.com. Uh, let us know if you'd like to host a road trip. A like road to- trip is where we show up at uh, a pub near you. Uh, we bring some uh, handouts with us, and we discuss with uh, your friends, your men's group, whoever you've brought with you, um, a theological issue that Luther faced and how we may face it still today. Yep, and then uh, you can catch us uh, on our website, graceontap-podcast.com, uh, or on Facebook, Grace on Tap Podcast. We would appreciate any reviews you can post on iTunes, which will help... Um, our podcast show more frequently as a possible suggestion for people. Prost. Prost. Prost.